the space cave a big warg to all of you let's get right into part two with the great james urbaniak so we left off and i was thinking of a story and this ties in kind of tangentially but i was thinking of you as a high schooler and i was thinking of you Mm. saying i didn't nail it and on some level the home run that you hit that you're not happy with because you didn't hit the middle of the ball and you didn't hit it to dead center field or wherever you had in mind that was like a perfect shot. I one time was going to a high school rodeo and I ran out of gas and I was really late getting there and friends of mine ran over and were like, luckily that things were delayed. You're, you're still good. So I go through all this effort, but it's kind of short notice. And I was at that point, um, listed as like open-ended, which meant you just kind of throw your name in and they pair you up with someone. So I go into like the roping box and look over to someone I've never seen before, which would be like showing up to a dance. You're like, here, have fun, do a tango. And you grab someone's hand and you feel their waist or they feel yours and you go, I think we can do this. I'm just getting a natural (laughs) feel. You're hoping, you're optimistic. And then the music starts and how good can it really go? So my person goes out and ropes the the horns, but it's illegal. Only I see it. No one else really does. So he turns off and I rope one leg, but I thought, ah, the, the, the head catch was illegal. No sense going through with this. I let it go. And then this guy's like enraged at me. He's like, what are you doing? So we race around and we, uh, try to like complete the, the roping act. We don't (laughs) succeed. And afterwards he's like, what are you doing? And I go, well, you had an illegal catch. He's like, that's not your job to call it out. It's the it's the referees. It's there's a guy there on a horse with like a flag who can hold up this flag and say it's illegal. It's not your job. So I I've always kind of kept that in my head since then that like I stand by the ethics of it. That yes. I couldn't feel good if I knew it and I did it in a way that was illegal. At the same time, it was kind of uh unfair to him to make that decision as one half of a team without let, you know, maybe I could have completed the act and then gone over to the ref and be like, take a look at that head catch and been like kind of a a rat. (laughs) But I think when you act and you're feeling like in some way it wasn't pure or it wasn't. So going back to you being a teenager, you're like, I was pretty good as a high schooler. Say the line is, well, I'm leaving this town. I don't care where I go, but I'm leaving here. You have, it's only so many words. It's only so many sentences. There's a cadence. There's like an inner world that you can bring to it. You say it, everyone goes, James, you're so good in that play. But you leave and go, oh, I've got miles to dig to get those three sentences to where I feel like that's acting. That's really good acting as opposed to me just saying them in a believable way. Yes, exactly. By the way, sidebar, in high school, I never had these thoughts because in that play, I thought it was awesome. <laughs> so where did it turn into like? Because I, I, I didn't know the rules. I didn't know anything. 
So if I got a good reaction, it was like I was awesome. But could you? So you can't go watch, you know, day work bit part on a, a digestible sitcom. I think as you called it, like you know, <laughs> something that's just going to be on to the next piece. You can't watch that. But like, if you watch the play now, knowing at some point when I was seventeen, I could sit here and watch this and feel happy. And now I go, oh, what are you doing? Why is your body language like that? What, why would you say it this way? What's, knock that smile off your face. I'm sure it would be very hard for me. First of all, because I'm 58, this play was in like 1981. And there weren't that many video cameras <laughs> then. So I'm not aware that there's any videotape of this <laughs> high school performance. Oh, man. Uh, Gotta find if it. it if, if there were, I would just see the, the painfully skinny, awkward version of me. Wanting to act, though, it's a strange thing. Because mm-hmm. I was also kind of a shy kid, but I there was something that I liked about this, and they gave me this part. So I would probably I would probably be forgiving of myself. I wouldn't criticize it because this, when I I don't like the stuff on TV where I'm like, well, you're a grown up, you know technique, you're a pro, you do this for a living. Yeah, you should have done better, James. <laughs> you should have done better. <laughs> when you have one that you feel, I did my best. Yes. And, hey, we got to shut down. We're moving locations. We're changing cameras. In the old days, we're switching reels. Oh, crap. We're, we're, we're missing a can. we got to send someone. Now you're sitting on set for a while. You're waiting and waiting. And you're just comfortable knowing. Now, maybe you grab an actor and go, do you want to run these lines real quick? Or do you sit there going, this person is in me. And you can take two days. I will deliver it and walk away from it going, I got it. Or will you deliver it and then the, the director goes, can we try that again? And maybe this time there's just a little bit more uh, urgency. And you'd go, yeah, sure. I, you can tell me whatever because this person's in me. Are those the moments that yes. feel best? Yeah, that's good. Because here's the thing. When, when, you, when the person's in you, that means that you have a very clear idea about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and acting is doing something. That's what, a character is only what the character is doing. It's right. not about they look. They talk a certain... Those are elements. They have a certain kind of voice. They, you know, they have a limp, whatever. Those are surface things which are important, but that's not what drives the character. What drives the character is what is the character doing? What does the character want? Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a very clear idea about what that is, and it's a very strong idea, um, then you can do that thing in any number of different ways. So if... Whatever. If my idea is is to convince you of something, Dave mm-hmm. Huntsberger, that's what I'm doing in the scene. I'm convincing you. I can convince you by saying, you know, let us rob the bank. Let's rob the bank. Or I could scream, let's rob the bank. Like I could do it all different ways. And if the director wants it a certain way, I can, if, if your intention is strong enough, then you can adapt it to a different, uh, a different quality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, and that's, a, that's, that always feels really good because you're like, oh, but I know what the character is doing. And again, the doing, there's usually a dynamic. It's not like, that's like I talked about earlier. If it's, if you're thinking about your father dying when you're playing a guy whose father died, it, it might not be that good because you're too close to the thing and there's not going to be a kind of dynamic tension, like two magnets together. You know, there's just like, there's got to be like a spark and there might not be a spark there. So if you find the spark, then you can kind of deliver it any number of ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And I think, 
that synergy that comes about from preconceived notions being met with like, uh, oh, James has really embodied this character in a way where when he steps on the set, he's channeling something. And in my head, I had written it like, let's go rob that bank. But he looked up and there was like, you could feel 20 years exactly. of heartbreak. And that, those are the moments that we love in, in acting, is like when there's, there's some dimension to it beyond just the surface yeah. thing. And I, I bet you that that movie that we're making up about the bank robbery, who gives a shit about a bank robbery? We've seen that a million times. It's about the emotions and these characters. So maybe the bank robbery is actually about a middle-aged man having a midlife crisis. And that's what the story is about. And that's usually what great stories are about. There's a surface story, but it's not just about a bank robbery or whatever. It's about the emotions of these characters. And so that's the thing. It's like when I don't like myself in something, it's because I'm just playing. I'm, I'm, I'm playing literally. I'm playing literally, let's rob the bank. And I'm just, and it's not about but what else is going on with this guy yeah why is he behaving like this what's his inner life and that's just more interesting it's also better but it's also more interesting it just has more color to it so but you don't always have the for me i haven't always had the time or i just don't come up with it and so the performance is more literal as opposed to dimensional yeah you know what i mean yeah and i had an experience a couple years ago where i had a Wonderful experience doing a, a a series. I was on one episode, but this was a remarkable director, and he he had this. It was a situation where he was he did multiple takes, much more than you normally do on TV. And there was one scene where he just took a great deal of time, much more than you normally would. And all of us in the scene got better and better. And I'm very proud of my work in that show. I'm like, it's really dimensional and good. And while I was shooting that, my this is another humble brag, my agent called and said, you have another show. Uh, and the show I was doing that I felt good about was shooting out of town. They're like, when you come back to LA, as soon as you land, the next day, you're going to start this other show. And I did. And <laughs> I hate myself on the other show because I literally had no time. I remember like learning my lines on the plane and stuff. And then it was a big part. Like I had a lot to do in this other show. But the funny thing was, both of these performances were literally back to back. And I look at them and they're like two different actors. Uh, <laughs> so in one, I'm like really inside the character and finding this dimensional performance where it's, it's, there's a spark. It's not just two literal things on top of each other, you know? Yeah. And in the other one, I'm just doing a kind of literal thing because I just couldn't find it. I didn't have the time. And that... I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to say what these shows were because I'm too embarrassed about the one that I suck in. I don't, I don't want people to watch it. But, uh, but it was so... I, that one that I don't like myself in, and this... I shouldn't do this, but I carry that around my head constantly. Again, no one remembers this show. This was not an important episode. You know, it was, it was a procedural. It was like a crime show. And the other one was like a crime show too, but it was just much more interesting. Yeah. But so that's just a thing where within a month's time, I gave one of my favorite performances and one of my least favorite performances of all time, <laughs> literally like a week <laughs> from each other. Yeah. Now, I was the same actor. I just didn't find the key the second time, and I found it the first time. 
So I just, that's all. You just try to find the key and do the best you can. Yes. But I have to let it go because I was talking about Sarah, my wife, who you know, of course. Yes. About how outside of this conversation, there are a little, like you said something and offended your friend when you were 16 and you still think about it to this day. Yeah. There are those things where like, I wish I could go back and not have fucked that up or yeah. said this, embar- been so embarrassing. And the thing is, we all carry these little events in our head. And I was reading something about this kind of thing, like bad memories. And the person was saying, there's a little bit of narcissism to that. Because the the person that you offended when you were a teenager probably doesn't even remember that happened. Yeah. But you still carry it around. So you're like, you know what? It's not that important. Like you've learned, move on. Yeah. So I do try to kind of let these go and move on. It's also tricky, though, because I'm like, ah, but it's a TV show and people can see it. And I suck. <laughs> and then I won't get hired again because they're like, this guy sucks. But I'll bet it feels like. <laughs> it's really easy to get into the hole. <laughs> Is that an industry term? No, that's just me. The rabbit hole of your mind where you're like, I gave a bad performance on film that will be there forever. But I bet they're doubles and triples <laughs> and just they weren't smash walk off home runs. It, because I think when you've been doing something so long and you just have an inherent quality of believability in the the way to just speak. You know, when when someone's met with bad writing, and off the top of my head, I think of, and besides, if you have to say some yeah, language that involves... Exp- the, the, the exp- exposition, I was like, as you know, <laughs> I graduated college, but then lost my job. You're like, yes, I know. When Thanks I, for it, telling me. It didn't really occur to me to think that you know, when, I, when we're watching and we're hard on something, because it takes you out of it, and you go, oh, this person needs to take some acting lessons. They might have walked off and felt exactly how you feel. Like, I'm so totally. mad at myself. God, my, I'm better than that. And now my reel, or now, yeah, my, maybe the phone will stop ringing. And we don't see that. I've never heard of you. I just know the show that I like, you stepped into it, and you were noticeable, and that's a bad thing. But, we, you know, the story continued, and I'll forget about you, just like your friend that you offended at 17 or 16 or whatever. No, yeah, and I keep working. Once you're in the circuit, you kind of keep, you know, it, it, it's okay. But I, there are, and then there are slightly higher profile things where I don't feel I quite got the goods. And those, I still carry those around. I'm like, oh, I could, I'd be doing more if I hadn't fucked that opportunity up. <laughs> I, you know, the bank thing, again, to go back to that, that maybe someone's, just got a couple lines and one of them for whatever reason we know this bank decision just by their body language by how the camera pans around the table and we're seeing them kind of rub their head or whatever they're doing to let us know as the viewer they're not comfortable here and then they make a shift where they were the one that says let's do it and just in that little tiny line let's do it if they've nailed it we go oh man i don't know who that character is and i hate that they had to make this decision but i hope they pull this off because they seem to have really weighed those thoughts, the, the factors at play. And another thing that can happen is that moments like that can also be out of an actor's hands. You're, it, when you're doing film or TV, you're basically giving the raw material to the director and the editor, very yeah, importantly. Yeah. And some TV and movies edit. This is a this is a different area that's adjacent. Some shows edit for information and pace, and not depth of character yeah and some shows are interested in depth of character and like the little beat like i was in a show once and i remember like again you just you these things stay in your head it's so crazy it was like a and i was pretty happy with this scene but it was like a conversation with someone and before one of my responses as the character 
I like did a little like thinking thing. Like I made a little face and thought of something and then said something and I thought that was good. And then when they when they edited it, they cut out my little thinking thing before. So mm-hmm. I just said the line. And then I was so disappointed. I was like, yeah, but the thinking thing was the whole point of the moment. Like he thinks about it, then he answers. That's what the beat was about. You fucked it up. And now I'm like, now I look, now I look less interesting as an actor because of this editing choice. Yeah. And on the other hand, when I was starting out doing this, I, w- I did a thing, a TV thing. And there was a reaction shot of me that I didn't even remember making. And it almost looked like I was just like, are we done? Like I was on the set just doing something and they... Like at before they cut, yeah, and they used it, and it was just it was a nothing moment, but it seemed very real, and that was, and I had no memory of making that decision. It's just yeah. the way I turned my head and did something they realized would read as a reaction in that moment, yeah. and they put it in, and it was great. So that was a case where an editor just saw me do something that I don't remember thinking of doing, and we're yeah. like, you know what? If we put his face in here, classic example of the power of editing. And that what, where you, I could have been thinking about lunch, and they were like, "Oh, but it looks like something else." Well, He's worrying we, about the bank robbery, and it's awesome, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I could see where that would work both ways. Where if it moves the story along and does what you said, great. But if you also feel like almost like an illegal paparazzi photo or something, like, "Hey, I didn't give you authentic like authorization." That's authorization very funny. To use that. Yeah, because when I, I remember when I saw that, and this is a tiny moment that no one else would even notice, but I did. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, that's almost like a private." I felt the same thing. Like, was that, did they not cut? And that's just me, like, doing something on the set? But that's also an area that really interests me is, like, small moments. Because, like, the big moments, one of my, this is related to this, like, appreciating the small moments that actors do is the thing that I do. And Jimmy Stewart uh, did an interview once where he talked about acting. And he said this great thing, which I've always remembered. It's kind of a mantra for me. He was talking about how big performances, big acting gets noticed. And everyone says, that's great acting. And in the interview, he's referencing the old movie, uh, The Man with the Golden Arm, though he doesn't name it. And it, that was a movie where Frank Sinatra played a heroin addict. It's from like the 50s or the early 60s. And there's a scene where Frank Sinatra goes through withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And so in this interview, Jimmy Stewart is saying, well... You know, we could see an actor go through heroin withdrawal on screen, and the actor could run around the room and stand on his head. And for all we know, that's an accurate depiction of heroin withdrawal because most of us haven't actually gone through that. But if an actor walks on screen and says, Did I get any messages? we all know what that is. And if that doesn't seem real, then you've failed. <laughs> so he's like, It's not just the big moments. The little interstitial moments. Hey, do you have a match? Or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And and I loved that so much because I do love those moments. And it's hard to make those little moments real. Not the moments that people pay attention to. Those aren't the moments that win Oscars. But they're just as important as the big, yeah. I'm suffering moments. And, you know, and I love that. So often, I did I get any messages is like a mantra for me. Like, <laughs> if I'm doing a scene, like, don't, don't throw away the... The did I get any messages moments. It doesn't mean play them intensely. Mm-hmm. It means just play them real. You know. Do you, uh, that makes <laughs> to me, remember that? Yeah. The small moments. I like that because it, <laughs> we were talking a while ago about someone that I'm friends with that I, when I would see them in movies, 
it was their little acting when someone else was talking. That <laughs> if you go to a theater to watch your friend, you realize that you see that type of acting way more. Typically, you're watching the dialogue. You're watching, but if you find yourself looking at yes. the B character who's just standing there, are their eyes big? Are they nodding along? Are they pretending? I'm hearing and receiving what you're saying. It's it's a weird level of overacting in a way that's so unnecessary. We're like, just check the messages. Just hang out. If you're in a real conversation, you're probably you don't realize day to day how many moments of your life you're just standing there doing nothing. And that's the thing that I had to learn when I was very young, like eighteen, nineteen. I I went to a community college in New Jersey, and I and meanwhile, I that's when I started getting interested in this. I thought maybe I want to understand this. So when I was around nineteen, I grew up in New Jersey, and I took some classes in New York City at an acting studio where they had different levels but I was at the beginner level so you just had to pay not too much and they would and they were some good teachers there and I remember I had never heard this language before the language of acting I didn't know anything about it so they're like you have to be active you need a task in a scene uh you know like I said you have to be doing something well at the time when I was 19 I thought they were speaking literally so I thought if I was had to have a task in a scene, it meant while I'm talking about robbing the bank, I'm cleaning up my papers off the desk. <laughs> or, I, you know, so I would like move around and like move objects. I would like yeah. bring objects to the class. <laughs> and once I was literally doing that, like I was like cleaning up while I did a scene. I thought that's my action. That's my task. And the teacher stopped me and was like, wait, what are you doing? Stop that. <laughs> and then later I realized I can be doing something by sitting completely still. Mm-hmm. And the first, in Hannibal Lecter's first scene in Silence of the Lambs, he is playing mind games with Clarice. He's showing his power, you know. He's toying with her. And what's he doing? He's literally just standing still. And it's <laughs> terrifying. He's he's not like swooping, you know, into yeah. the frame. or He's literally standing still. And that's a classic case of he's doing something very active, but he's physically not doing anything, you know. Yeah. And that's that's what that's about. There's an old, like, joke that's attributed to one of the old acting teachers, maybe Sanford Meisner, someone like that. And the joke is, you say to the actor, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> so it's, it's the old switcheroo. Yeah. Uh, but that's good advice. Don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> I mean, when you see someone nodding their head yeah. and making, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, background people tend to nod their heads a lot. Oh, because yeah. they're not allowed to talk for sound issues. Mm-hmm. So, if two people are sitting at a restaurant set and they have to look like they're having a conversation, but they can't speak, they constantly nod to each other. Mm-hmm. And once I was on a set where it was like a restaurant or a bar scene, and there were all these extras, and the first AD, who one of the first ADs, many jobs is is that kind of crowd work is 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 directing the the background people. Yeah. And this guy said, "Don't nod, no nodding, please." And it was the only guy I've ever seen say that. <laughs> and it was like the greatest first AD direction because you, if you, you if you watch any crowd scene, you'll see people nodding at each other like bobbleheads because <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to communicate. Yeah. Isn't this food good? <laughs> and then they just nod their heads off. <laughs> You did the acting class, and mm. then you. When oh, did you start history? the company? Yeah, because we talked about like. Yeah, I, mean, I think of you doing your one man play. That and was like Kurt your, Vonnegut being there. 
Oh yeah, I did. A, I did a one man play in New York that a uh, a guy named Will Eno wrote. A great play called Tom Paine, based on nothing. And it, it got a. That was much later though. That was like in the two thousands. Oh okay. But that play did very well, and then it got a. It famously got a rave review in the New York Times, and then like famous people came to see it. In fact, Fran Drescher came and like oh, hung out with me. It was wow. great. It was quite a time. Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> came. It's true. Wow. That was a crazy time. And but, you're the only person on stage. Yeah, it was a one-man play about this character who talks to the audience. And so I was the guy. Mm-hmm. And the guy who wrote it was a friend of mine. And he... he but so, just an outrageous amount of dialogue for you to an every hour. night go into. Yeah, it. I had to. And then that's a whole other thing, like memorization tricks. But you wanted... You were like, what's... But so go backwards. I go okay. to this community college. I start doing plays. I start getting vaguely interested in acting, and I take some classes in New York. Uh, yeah, and then I basically, I kind of just, after a couple of years, I just stopped going to that school. I just wasn't on an academic track. Mm-hmm. But at that time, I got super interested in acting, but as an amateur. So I was basically a quintessential slacker. I was like a guy, a young guy, out of school, then I just started working day jobs. My day jobs tended to be working in offices, like temping in offices, mm-hmm. typing. And then I was just doing amateur theater at night. Like other colleges in, in the area where I grew up, they would people from who weren't students could still be in plays. They would have like auditions for the public, and 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 there were there were like a number of community theater groups in New Jersey, and I would do amateur shows with them and. I was really, and slowly, very slowly learning things at that school in New York, where I literally didn't understand that having a task could mean I just sit here and look you in the eyes. Yeah. I don't have to clean up and fluff the pillows. (laughs) Um, That took a long time to understand that. And then what happened is I met this woman I mentioned before named Karen, who was um, a very interesting person. She had been a teacher at a boys' school. She was a, a, she was like 10 years older than me, so I was like in my early 20s. She was in her early 30s when we met. And long story short, she'd been a teacher at this boys' school. She was an English teacher. That was her track. She was... And they and one day they said to her, hey, we want to do plays. Like, would you, would you direct the plays? They just wanted someone to direct, and they thought maybe she'd be good at that. And she said, yeah, sure. And she starts directing plays in this high school where she's teaching, and she realizes, I think this is what I want to do for real. Like, this just makes sense to me. Wow. And she's doing kind of interesting stuff, just like visually. She's just thinking as a director. And it's like, she's like 31 years old, and she's like, I think this is actually what I was meant to do. And then uh, after a couple years of doing these plays at the school, she applied to Columbia University in New York. They had a master's program in theater directing and part of her application was a videotape of one of the plays she directed at the school Whoa. and she got in and then i met her when she was going there because she was from the same part of new jersey that i was from and she had gotten a job directing a community theater play at a park like an amateur production of a play and i auditioned for that because i was on i was still big on this community theater circuit so we met but she was going pro she was going to school for this you know and then we just, this is the person who gave me the, like, the arty direction later, you know, you're a yeah, Picasso. Right. Mm-hmm. And we just met and we're like, this is great. We became great friends and collaborators. And then she said, we did like, a, a, we did plays, like a couple plays that summer. And she was like, I want to go to, 
I'm going to school in New York and basically I want to form a theater company in New York. What do you think of that? And I said, let's do it. And that's what made me go into New York. Wow. That's what motivated me to stop being a Jersey slacker <laughs> where I was just, you know, going to bars with my friends, yeah. doing amateur plays and hanging out. And then I moved to New York City and uh, we started producing ourselves. And that was what really put me on the path. And that's where I really started learning stuff. But I was basically kind of self-taught because all the classes I took were just kind of part-time. I didn't have any formal training or anything, you know. So Other I feel than like, like the 10,000 hours of you guys were putting on shows. It was that, the, the, the proverbial uh, 10,000 hours. I definitely put in that time. Was she a good, you know, mirror to say, hey, your performance here is a little too this or that or try this? Because she is a director, totally. so is she helping you see? Yes. And, uh, yes. And the thing that she did when I was very young, which was very helpful, extremely helpful, is because we were a small company and we just made our own rules. And when I was younger, I was very comfortable playing like funny guys, but I wasn't comfortable like playing like maybe a serious character or a leading man mm-hmm. or whatever. I was like, well, that's not me. I'm like the comedian. Yeah. And we did a, I remember we did a play and she's like, you should be the straight guy, you know, serious, not funny guy, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and we'll cast this other guy as the, as the comic part. And I was very uncomfortable with that idea. I'm like, no, I want to be the funny guy. I don't want to be the leading man. Look at me. I'm a geek. I'm a freak. She's like, no, no yeah. And she's like, yeah, I think you should try it. Just let's just, 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 let's try this. And then it was a great experience for me because I really was finding new colors and a new command. And I was outside my comfort zone, to put it simply. And so that's a great thing that we were able to do with that company is a lot of actors, especially young actors, you get typed very quickly. So the girl who's not like as traditionally pretty, let's say, we would cast as like the leading lady and I was more comfortable doing comedy parts so I would play like the serious parts and we all got to push ourselves in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be cast in the mainstream industry. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you'd have that in your quote unquote like tool bag. Exactly. So people who were more like character people were playing like the leading roles and the people who were sort of the traditionally good looking were playing like comic parts mm-hmm. which, where they wouldn't necessarily get cast in. Yeah. So everyone got to push themselves and it was a great time. And the productions were really good. And we ended up getting audiences and kind of carving out a, uh, a reputation for ourselves. This is like the late 80s, early 90s. It's a very long time ago. <laughs> but we did. We kind of, And it was kind of like being in a band. It was like, you know, this little company. We started meeting actors and people came in and we had regular people. And, and we were kind of just doing it ourselves and there was a whole very vibrant scene in you know what they call off off broadway downtown in new york uh at that time and uh it was a very exciting time and so i i dedicated myself to that company for like about six years and all this time i didn't have an agent and i wasn't on that like money making track Mm -hmm. by my own choice i was just so obsessed with what we were doing. I'm not saying that's better than someone else. Aware it's just what, what I was doing. Yeah. And but, I was I was temping during the day during that whole time. Is there anyone that you would like compare yourself to as far as, oh, they're my age and they just booked this show or this movie. Should I be doing that? Oh, sure. That started to happen. because, And then just by being in New York, you meet other people mm-hmm. and you would meet people downtown. And I was also going to see a lot of plays, so I would go to Broadway and and so I started meeting actors who were on a more commercial track who had, say, gone to NYU or Juilliard and 
started getting TV gigs. And I was like, I, I was interested in that. But for those like first six years, I was really still obsessed with what we were doing and learning. And it wasn't that important to me. And basically everything kind of happened on schedule. I, just by being in New York and doing all these plays and we started to get like reviewed in the paper and stuff. And like, you know, I started meeting other people and I ended up being in like an off-Broadway play that actually paid me for the first time, you know. Yeah. And then I started meeting some directors who were on the independent film scene of the 90s, you know, who I just kind of met through people I knew and they started putting me in films. That kind of happened. And then Hal Hartley, who's a great independent film director out of New York, saw me like on stage and put me in a movie that got a lot of attention. And then through that movie, I, a movie called Henry Fool, I, start, I actually got an agent and then I started actually making a living at this. But I, when I started, I didn't, quit, I didn't quit my day job till I was like in my early 30s. That, so I was, so cool. I was, you know, and then I transitioned to making a living at this. And then that, that's the other thing. It's like you start doing stuff that's not as creatively satisfying. And sometimes you don't have the time to be good. So you're like, well, but you know. But everyone always misses those hungry years. And to look back on the- It was an exciting where, time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's- I just actually went to- There's a company from that time that still exists, a wonderful theater company in New York called Elevator Repair Service. <laughs> that's their name. Because the director of that company, a, a really brilliant guy named John Collins, when he was in high school, he took a quiz. It's like, what career would you be good at? And you fill out these <laughs> answer questions. Yeah. And the answer he got was elevator repair. <laughs> so when he created, he became a director and formed a theater company and he called it elevator repair service. And sometimes they would have like confused people calling them, you know, yeah, to fix yeah. their elevators. <laughs> but I just saw, he, they just did a play in L.A., and they, they're a company from that time, from 30 years ago. They were all very young yeah. in their early 20s. And and he is still uh, directing that company. Uh, and Whoa. they're they're internationally renowned, like they're a big company now. But that I just the other day, I and I hadn't seen a lot of these people in many years because they're based in New York. And th those are some of my oldest friends and, and warmest memories is like people from that time. When you get together, is it like take you immediately back where you guys are like, do you remember this? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, we're remembering. All and then like my wife is there, who, of course, didn't know those people at that time. Yeah. So we're just kind of like explaining things, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> <laughs> but then the Explaining the references. Yeah, yeah. He's locked on the alley out back at all to be alive. Those are, I, it was great though. You're like young in the city and figuring things out. And it was also, it was very communal and, and very supportive. Everyone's supporting each other. Like, oh, I saw an actor and it was very social back then. The off-off-Broadway world was much more accessible than like the Broadway world. Like you'd go to a show and then you'd just hang out in the lobby and the actors would come out and you'd talk to them and you'd go have a drink. Mm -hmm. You know, we all had Rolling Rock back then. It was pre-craft beer, but it was still fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you meet and you just, and you're, one's whole social scene, every girl I went out with was like someone I met from that world back yeah. then, you know. That's just the way it worked. Are know? people starting to get breaks <laughs> of like, oh, did you hear so-and-so is going on a tour with this play? They're taking it around the world. Or so-and-so got cast in a, in a blockbuster. Or so-and-so is uh, in uh, for, you know, Cheers or something that was like, they're leaving us. They, they got a, like a major, major That break. started to happen a little bit, yeah. Like I, in the 90s, I was pretty much, in, in the 90s is when some of the people I knew started going to L.A., 
This is actually a funny story. I was in a production of Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, and there was a very talented actor who was in it with me. We're playing Vladimir. And, and no, he was playing Pazzo. Do you know the play? Mm-mm. Well, anyway, it's Samuel Beckett, famous kind of avant-garde play. And this guy was a brilliant actor. I'd, I'd seen him on stage. Karen and I, the director, had seen him, and he was so commanding and amazing. And he did this play with us, and we started rehearsing. We were rehearsing the first week, and he got... A um, he got a, a TV show. He's like, I have to do this show, and we're like, we totally understand. And the show was Cop Rock, <laughs> one of the most <laughs> legendary flops, <laughs> but still kind of cool that he got to be in. Yeah, the legendary Cop Rock. So <laughs> that was a classic example of a downtown guy who went Hollywood, and it was Cop Rock. <laughs> and then I watched it. Like there he is singing about, I'm on the beat. <laughs> Crazy show. If you've never seen it, it's on YouTube. It really is all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> Cop rock. Steve Bochco produced it. It was the guy who made like all these great shows, like the guy who created like... Uh, Doogie Hauser. Did he create Doogie Hauser? That's the only reason I know that name, I think. Stephen Bochco? Yeah. Because Hill Street Blues was like his big show. He created the kind of ensemble uh, drama that's still yeah. a convention to this day in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then he had an, a wacky idea. It was like, what if it's a procedural cop show, but they sing? <laughs> and then it just didn't work. It's it's campy, but That's not a, in a good way. Yeah. It's one of those when you're a little too hot. and Like in sports, they call it like yes. a heat check. Hey, let's get to this guy a heat check. He can't miss. Oh, that was a big miss. That's exact. That's my friend Griffin Newman's podcast, Blank Check, is premised on that idea. That uh, <laughs> you have some success, and then you have a blank check to create something. And sometimes they bounce, and sometimes they, they cash, and sometimes yeah. they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the thing. I started to meet people who were getting kind of more high-profile stuff and... My God, I remember, like, I didn't really know him that well, but I would see him around now and then when Philip Seymour Hoffman started coming up. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I, there's a story that I've told before where he, um, I auditioned for a play off-Broadway, and I, it went, it was a one-act play. It was like an evening of one-act plays, and I thought I was doing really well, and I could tell that the producers thought I was great. And I thought, I'm going to get this. And then I didn't get it. And a very young, pre-famous Philip Seymour Hoffman got it. And I went to see it. I was curious. And I was like, oh, all right, let's see this fucking guy. Got the part. And then he's fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> he comes out and he's at a level that I wouldn't even have thought of. Mm-hmm. And I that was actually a great experience because it was like, oh, wow, he really went somewhere that I don't know. I My performance would have uh, been successful on its own terms. But he, I saw him and it was like, this guy is like at another level and... I'm actually kind of glad I didn't get this because this is teaching me something. I think That's everyone true. needs to experience. <laughs> it's hard to like quantify how that would that same experience would feel to other people because if you're a weightlifter and you're convinced you're the strongest, and someone comes in and they lift a hundred pounds more than you, yeah, you have that feeling. But in things like arts, things that are subjective, you still get that same oh, that's a hundred pounds more feeling, but it comes in a very different way because sometimes I feel like when you're young and you're new at something and you're doing okay, you might start to have a false sense of confidence that like you might watch someone that's a hundred pounds better than you and go, "Eh, I'm still better. And your friends would have to go, you're not. And then you, yeah, yeah. You learn it slowly. Well, there's, and and then uh, the thing is the rest of the country then learned 
had the same experience I had with him watching yeah. him in movies. Like, holy shit, this guy's amazing. Mm-hmm. I think it was like him in Boogie Nights was the first time he really had an effect on people. That yeah. character of the of the crew guy. Oh, definitely. Which is a very funny <laughs> character, but also like really heartbreaking. heartbreaking and yeah. he's really sharing some deep pain in that character. And people really related to that. But uh, so, yeah, I remember seeing him when he was young. He was and I was like, shit, this guy's better than me. Fuck. <laughs> and that's just a fact. Like he was. Uh, but I'm pretty good. And I was watching this interview with. I love actors, so I watch all these interviews and things. So I was watching this interview with Carl Malden, who was in the original Streetcar Named Desire. He was on the in the Broadway play with Brando, and he's in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, I watched that movie again recently. It's a great movie. Brando, of course, is fantastic, and Brando's performance hasn't dated a second. It's still as alive as it ever was. But Carl Malden is also giving a great method acting performance as Mitch, his kind of shy friend. Mm-hmm who uh, develops a crush on uh, Blanche and all, you know, the story. But the performance that we remember that's so legendary is Brando. You talk about Streetcar, you talk about Brando and Vivian Lee. You, and then later you'll go, oh, and, and Carl Malden was in it too. Mm-hmm. But Carl Malden is excellent, great. Uh, and I think we can all agree Brando's just at a different level than Carl Malden. But that's, you know... And I, I saw an interview with Carl Malden where he actually addresses meeting Brando and working with Brando. They're contemporaries, much like me and Mr. Hoffman. And Carl Malden says in this really sweet way, he says, well, you know, as actors, we know we're not going to be at the level of Brando, but it sure is fun to try. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was such a great way. And like... He seemed like a man at peace. He's like, yeah, I'm good, and people like what I do. I'm not Brando, but it's like, you know, whatever. Brando, Bob Dylan, Picasso, like, most of us can't. I just aren't. The gods just didn't deal us that hand, and that's fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know. Um, But it sure is fun to try to be as good as you can be, you know. So people like the late Philip Hoffman are still, like, inspiring to me, where I'm like, Ah, if I can just be as good as he was, like in that play, you know. <laughs> but don't before he was even famous. To be like a contrarian to some degree, as far as that sentiment or thought, you know, there are women that would maybe get breast implants or a bunch of plastic surgery to feel a certain aesthetic that they are trying to match, and then there might be someone that's just playing the hand they are dealt, and you and I might see it and go, "That is the most beautiful," or at least the beauty that she's. Man, it, she's harnessing and feeling power from. Yes, I feel it. It's real. Yes, because what you're talking about is when something is personal, and when someone projects something personal. Yeah, that is always going to be effective. If a stand-up's jokes are based on something personal, they're probably going to be funny, you know, because it's personal. And then there are comedians who are like, "This kind of joke is funny." I'll tell this kind of joke. And so, by extension, an actor, man or woman, can be like, I have to look a certain way. This this is the way an actor looks. I have to look this way. Or I have to act this way because this is what people like. Mm -hmm. I once had a friend who was an actor in New York who was a great drinking buddy, but he liked to rant. (laughs) He was very glass half empty kind of guy. (laughs) And he once said, I act bad at auditions for TV because I know they want bad acting there. (laughs) <laughs> and if I'm too subtle, they don't appreciate it. So I do like 
big bad acting and and I'm like I don't know man I don't think that's the way to go I really don't <laughs> but that's the thing it's about so if someone has a personal sense of themselves no matter what they look like they're going to be I mean look at Phil Hoffman he didn't even look like an actor he looked like what he was he looked like an aging high school wrestler yeah he just looks like a, a typical American kind of ex-jock who's like gaining weight like he just he didn't his face like he just he doesn't look like an actor but he could play anything and one of the greatest things when he died someone wrote a, there were all these tributes i even i wrote a tribute to him that where i told that story about seeing him in that play that mm. was published um someone said about him in a sense he wasn't really right for any role <laughs> which is totally <laughs> true like you wouldn't cast him as truman capote this little guy with this high voice. Yeah. Just physically. Like there's no, <laughs> there are no points of comparison. And yet he completely finds his way into that because he had, again, such a gift at kind of finding the kind of inner life and inner pain of characters. And obviously he had a lot to say about that issue. And he gave us so much in the brief time that he was alive, you know, so like yeah, accomplished so much. But, and also that's a movie where there's these great shots of Capote just looking at things, like looking at the, when the guys are being hanged and like just sitting there looking and there's so much going on, but his face is completely still. And it's actually kind of mysterious. Like, how do you project emotion where I don't even see, like you're not crying, but it's just, I can see an emotion in your eyes. And he had that gift that he could, of incredible power and stillness. And that to me is like the highest form of acting. That's the thing that I'm really kind of obsessed with. Like, how are you doing that? Because I think I'm pretty sophisticated about acting. I can watch a great performance and go, I know what you're doing technically. I can break this down. Yeah. You know, I see what you're doing. And it's great. I love it. It's wonderful and inspiring. But Hoffman is one of those actors where at his best, I'm literally mystified. I don't know what the fuck he's doing to achieve <laughs> this, you know? That's and there, there are a few other actors like that where I'm like, I don't know. You, yeah, I don't know what's going on here. That's why I... <laughs> Last time we were hanging out, I was saying you if you taught acting or had a course or something, I think it would be so – you were like, I don't think I can speak the language. But I think what you just said about being able to watch what someone does and go, okay, I know your techniques. I know you, you're kind of – however you would word that. You're tying into this. You're touching yeah. on this. But to, to have that would That's be – That's funny. Yeah, I've always been kind of resistant to the idea of teaching. But I do like kind of breaking it down. I've thought about – and I've talked to – I've talked to you about this, I think, about like doing like – maybe like some sort of YouTube video where I just kind yeah. of talk about performance moments from films that I like. Yeah. And and discuss my crackpot theories about acting styles. No, I so like forth. it. We, we were talking about <laughs> Jesse Plemons. He's great. But I was saying he's he's gone into this phase. So like Philip Seymour Hoffman went into his, I'm kind of a CIA guy. He did. He did. He had, he had certain stock mannerisms. He would keep his mouth open and he would kind of talk down here like yeah. that. He, yep. they, those, those things worked for him. Mm-hmm. And Jesse Plemons, who I think is a fantastic actor, is I agree. going into this very still, like a stillness quality to, to any character. I see. Yes. And I, I think that when people go through phases, we go like, was well, the next yes. phase going to be, oh, now now they're a meth head racing around and emotionally out of control. That'd be quite a turn. Or are they always going to find, I just like the stillness. I like seeing how little I can make these atoms vibrate within this character. 
And that, but it's interesting that because that is the thing that actors also find things that work and they'll repeat them mm-hmm. the way any artist does. Like there are shots in Coen Brothers movies that are very similar in different films. Yeah. And as we all know, composers and musicians, you can tell it's one of their songs. You can just tell the way they put the notes together. You yeah. can just tell because there's something that works that just works for them. And, you know, style, that's the thing that's interesting, you know. And then you do kind of go through phases like I was talking about where like I was sort of like start with the inside and then add the outside. And now I'm like, eh, try to start with the outside. See what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, add the inside later. You so, always, But you do go – and then the, prob, the trouble is you start getting your technique and then there's the danger of coasting, which I have certainly done as well. This is like a confessional interview for me. <laughs> Where you're kind of like, I know what works, and I'm just going to coast, and I'm just going to do that. As opposed to like pushing yourself or really working at it Mm -hmm. to come up with something new, you know? Because it's easy to get slick and professional. Who's someone that you would point to that like redefined or pushed themselves in a way where, wow, them at 40 is way different than them at 25 or or 60 or, you know, wherever it would be. Well, I'll tell you somebody, Brad Pitt, uh, I think... I, Brad Pitt's one of my favorite actors, but I'm not as crazy about some of his early performances when he started out, mm-hmm. where he's like a young leading man guy. Yeah. I just found him more interesting as he got older. And also, I mean, he always had incredible charisma and a command on screen, obviously. But there's something, but I'm actually excited about his acting, let's say, in the last 20 years than I had been like it when he came up in like the early 90s or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, because he he has like a kind of physicality now that's that's just very exciting to me and part of it may have to do with getting older and so he's not so maybe the parts are a little more interesting than just sort of the handsome young guy you yeah. know a river runs through it here's my hat you know <laughs> yeah uh but he he has like a but i could see like he has a different toolbox he has a different vocabulary now uh, than he did say thirty years ago when he was younger. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so he's he's someone who I think about like I just and I I I find him very inspiring because I'm talking about how I didn't like myself in these obscure shows, and I've heard him say like he didn't like some of his early performances. So I have the feeling he he sort of he he sees he saw himself and was like oh, I think I can be better. Mm-hmm. But he got famous pretty young, so he wasn't super young, but he was certainly young when he got famous. So he's like learning and changing in big movies that everyone's seeing. Yeah. Which is something I can't even imagine. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, I sucked in this show, but it was like Law and Order that no one remembers. Ten versions of Casablanca or something. It's not like I was in some big Hollywood movie where I'm like, oh, I'm not good in that. (laughs) But yeah, he's a guy who I I do think about, like I I enjoy him. uh, I could see a change in him as like he got past 40 and stuff. Yeah, I... um... You brought up Heath Ledger and to to be able to do that at such a young age. And people will bring up the... Dark Knight, I don't really care about that part because I don't know that world. I don't know what the Joker should be. But Brokeback Mountain, the West, Cowboys, I know that very well. And yeah, if right. you told me, oh, this Australian guy is going to come in and play this believable day yeah. worker kind of ranch hand guy, I'd be like, I have to. Yeah, I'll, this I'll I got to see. If, yeah, because <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch didn't do it. 
and I love. I think he's a great actor. And I know Sam Elliott got in a lot of trouble it. recently for kind of crapping yes. on that movie. I also have issues with that movie just from a fair enough from a Western perspective. Yes, of course. Uh, well, why wouldn't you? You know, that's what, yeah, that's where you're from. That's where you, exactly. So if someone made my God, a thing, you went to a rodeos in high school. We didn't do that in New Jersey. <laughs> so I had no, I had no basis in reality when I saw Power of the Dog. I'm like, looks good to me. <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> but Heath Ledger, because it would make sense if that movie was cast today and Brad Pitt might have the tools to go, I've been around. I've experienced some pain. I, I've been around people. I look a little more weathered now. So oh, I Brad can, Pitt would have killed it in, in the Benedict Cumberbatch role in, in Power of the Dog. Yeah. But he, but he would not have as a young actor done what Heath Ledger did. But maybe now he could in that little bit more in the toolbox. Yeah, so he I had that so. at 28 or 27 whenever he made that movie. And that to me is an astonishing accomplishment. Yeah. And Heath Ledger is also of the trans, transform yourself school. Mm-hmm. Like when he started out, he was this good looking guy and he was cast in these sort of leading man roles and like some of the more obscure like Australian films that he started out. But he was essentially a character actor. He's the kind of guy who changes his voice, mm-hmm. you know, and his whole center of gravity is different from film to film. Mm-hmm. And that's not a better kind of acting or worse kind. It's just what he does, you know, what he did. But he was a brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I, I, I'm not, I don't like complain about them. I don't really care. But like, I'm just not into the superhero stuff that much. I'm just not into it. But I don't think it's like the death of culture or whatever. I'm just not that into it. But so like, there's a thing where like, Bat, which the Dark Knight kind of levels out for me at a point because I'm just not into. The, I just don't care about Batman and his hijinks. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I love Heath Ledger in that because he's doing this fantastic thing where he's also doing like this very specific kind of. He kind of talks like me. He sounds like this kind of, <laughs> kind of. He has this kind of like adenoidal, educated voice mm-hmm. of a kind of nerdy, smart guy who's decided to go bad. You know, so the way that he talks in that, this kind of, you know, he, you know, why so serious? It's basically the voice that Anthony Hopkins is trying to do in Silence of the Lambs. It occurred to me, by the way, I don't want to say anything bad because that's one of the all-time great performances. And I'll never forget being in the theater when that was in the theater. And, and you could feel the energy shift in the room during that first scene. That's an incredible performance. But, and this is trivial, he's of a generate, I think he's doing an American accent, mm-hmm. but it just sounds like a British guy. It yeah. sounds like Anthony, but when you think about it, he's saying, hey, Clarice, he's kind of doing the Joker voice. He's doing like, I'm a smart American guy yeah. who's like, I'm a guy in my basement with my computer kind of character, and now I'm in a position <laughs> of power. He's doing that voice. This occurred to me recently. But Heath Ledger is, is a you younger generation. This should be your YouTube thing of like people. Yeah, would, exactly. I mean, it's such a. What's nuance. wrong with Anthony Hopkins' accent? And so I, I don't want to lead with that because I love him. No, in but that. it's like there's a warm. What you're saying is, doesn't feel like criticism. It's just a little insight into maybe this is what this person was going well, for. Well, this this is a very trivial thing, but the younger generation of British and Australian actors are better at American accents because yeah. they grew up with more American stuff. Yeah. Whereas Anthony Hopkins is not that good at it and i think it was like maybe the 10th time i'd seen silence of the lambs i went wait a minute i think he's doing american yeah he's kind of trying to talk like this but but it just sounds like this because you just he, he can't get rid of the britishness yeah but that's my theory that he is doing an american i don't know Pete, prove me wrong <laughs> 
<laughs> it made me think of your the tone of your voice, the quality of your voice, Dr. Venture. Is it something where someone hears your voice and goes, that's how it sounds? Or did you read it and go, I think this character sounds like this? Well, that was a hilarious... Well, basically, Dr. Venture is my voice. It's just a different attitude. Like, mm-hmm. he's more persnickety and, yeah. you know, stuff. He's kind of basement guy, nerd guy to some degree. Totally. But when I... The, I've told this story before, but the first day that we recorded the pilot, Jackson, the creator of the show, was directing... And uh, he said, uh, and I, I went in thinking, okay, it's Dr. Venture. So he's like a wacky professor guy. So I started doing a kind of rubbery thing like this, almost like Billy West does, you know, mm-hmm. or like Larry from the Three Stooges, you know, like, I'm Dr. Venture. And it was like that. And uh, I was like, Dean, we're going to New York City. And I remember Jackson said, okay, so we're recording. This is the first thing out of my mouth. He's like, <laughs> All right, so just a little less. Can you, like, just bring that thing down, the thing you're doing, just a little less of that? I was like, sure. Dean, we're going to do a little less. (laughs) Dean, less. (laughs) And then I'm like, Dean, we're going to New York. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) And basically, it was just when I got rid of all the affectation, it was just my voice, Mm -hmm. which is affected enough. My mother had a very precise way of speaking, and my dad was kind of loud, so I think I have a combination of their... I definitely have like my mother's enunciation. She had a kind of, my mother was from Jersey City and she had a Jersey accent. She kind of had a working class Jersey accent, mm-hmm. like the Sopranos, you know. And she, her two sisters talk, talk like, hi, Jimmy, how are you? <laughs> they liked working class, Hudson County, near New York, kind of talk like this, drop the R's, you know. And my mother told me that when she, my mother was not a performer. She did some amateur theater, but she was not an actress. But she said she deliberately wanted to get rid of her Jersey accent because she didn't like it. So my mother had a slightly over-articulated way of speaking. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So especially in public, like if she went up to a person in the store, excuse me, can you tell me where the ladies' room is? You know, she would... So I think I kind of got... I think I have a certain attack vocally that's similar to... That's inspired by her way of speaking. Interesting. But so that's the Dr. Venture thing is basically like my voice. But as you know, I'm a much more chill dude. <laughs> You're the chillest dude. Than Dr. Dude. Venture. But your voice quality does have, <laughs> it could go either way. You could be evil guy. You oh, yeah. You could very easily be, I trust this guy to get us out of this pinch. But I play, a lot of yeah, I've, 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 I've played a lot of bad guys. You know, I'm this sort of Machiavellian evil uh, scientist type. As opposed to the powerful, you know, the str- the big, strong yeah. uh, thug guy. In Difficult I'm People, you're kind of outfit. like an NPR mellow chill guy. That was actually great because Julie Klausner wrote that character with me in mind. And I don't think I'd ever really played the nice boyfriend before. Mm-hmm. And in the in the crazy universe of that show, he was sort of the most grounded, yeah, most sort of normal guy. Mm-hmm. everyone else was like sort of I mean the great thing about that show was it had a beautifully diverse cast and the great joke of the show was that everybody was an asshole <laughs> <laughs> so you know yeah um, and then my character was had his quirks but was kind of basically a nice guy yeah and I think she knew that that would be funny mm-hmm. that that my default qualities would work in that character of like the supportive boyfriend yeah. To the kind of outspoken, uh, brassy lady. Yeah. And it worked. It was a good idea. <laughs> I'm really glad <laughs> she cast me in that. That was so much fun to do that. And we also were old friends. We knew each other for many years before that show. 
cool. So I think she knew that that would land. Mm-hmm. I think it really that we would cool. land as a romantic couple. Yeah. Since we were actual old pals and already mm-hmm. had a great chemistry. Yeah, you had a chemistry. Yeah. It made me think of uh, going back <laughs> to like editing, but that someone saying, just play it this way, do your voice this way. The, like I, the, one of the few times I did stand up on television, I was really worried about the editing. And then you yes. see it and they cut from like premise to premise with no punchlines. And I was like, oh, it just felt horrifying to be like, exactly. how are they allowed to do that? That's so unfair. And, but if it works in a way where like, you know, you're talking about the, the look that you gave, they happen to catch. Yeah. If someone's in a project, say Julie, an old friend, someone you have chemistry with, and you're like, I think this guy is in this type of mood today. And he did this and you give the take. And then she just goes, <clears throat> can you just say it? Just say the word, no affect. And you go, you mean like a, like I'm a casting director saying, put the books <laughs> on the table and leave? Yeah, just like that. And then you do it. And maybe you watch the edit and go, oh my God, it works somehow. Oh, 100%. And that's happened to me before where uh, I'll be on a set and a director will say, can you do it this way? And I'll think, I don't know about that, but I'll do it. And then when I see it, I'm like, oh my God, that really works. And, and I... I'm, I Sure, there have been times when I, the director has suggested I do a change, and I don't quite commit to it because I don't quite trust what they were saying. I kind of half do it, yeah, and then I'll watch it. I know this has happened, and I'll be like, "Oh, he was right. I should have really <laughs> committed to that." Because the director sees, because the director is also thinking about the big picture and yeah. how this moment's going to play next to that moment, and how it's things are going to be cut together and. And, you know, there's a thing of if you think the person knows what they're doing, it's important to trust them. Mm-hmm. I've also had experiences with a handful of bad directors or people who weren't collaborative and also didn't have very good ideas. And you just try to get along, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you mentioned, you know, you, like, you leave the the New York world and then how'd you end up in L.A.? Because I know your dad kind of thought... There was a turning point where he went, "Oh, this is real!" Like you're, you're. T- you've oh yeah, well, I've uh, I've told you these stories in real life before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was very young and decided I was going to move to New York and be an actor, nobody in my family had any connection to the arts or show business. None. Yeah. So, and I was this kind of you know weird, nerdy, skinny kid, and so when I said to my dad, "I want to be an actor." My dad thought it was like I was saying, I want to be John Wayne. I want to be a movie star. <laughs> yeah. Because he didn't understand, quite understandably, that you can make a nice middle-class living as a working actor without being like Al Pacino or, or, or Cary Grant or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think he thought at the time I was completely deluded. That by saying <laughs> I want to be an actor meant I want to be a movie star. Ergo, I want to be like John Wayne. Yeah. And he's like, what are you talking about? Have you looked in the mirror? <laughs> like, you know. What, what, have you listened to your voice? You're like, you're not like a cool movie star guy. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? But he, he basically was just bewildered. And then eventually when I moved in and started doing stuff and he enjoyed it and then he, and then, you know, once you start getting on TV, they're like, oh, it's exciting. They call their relatives, Jimmy's on Law and Order. <laughs> like, don't watch that. I'm terrible in that episode. <laughs> But he got it. He he got it eventually. Now he enjoys it. He enjoys asking about the technical aspect of it. Like, so how does it work? Yeah. What does an agent do? <laughs> but I love that scene where you're like buying a beer and hanging out with your dad and having a moment where you're like, 
I, I sort of made it, you know. I'm. Oh yeah, this was a st- This was when I first started making a living at this, and I had done that movie Henry Fool that I mentioned. That was my first kind of movie that got attention. First thing that really kind of film thing that got attention, and mm-hmm. I was. I had. I now had an agent, and I was auditioning for regular things, and I was on the path to to making a living at this. I, I didn't have to work a day job anymore, and it was the like the first year of that happening. And my dad had come into New York, and we were having a drink at the bar in a restaurant. And I was thinking, this is great, because there were some times where, you know, we were at cross purposes, and he didn't get it, and we didn't always get along. And now he gets it, and it's, here I am, having a drink with him. And then he said, in a very pleasant way, in his in his slight Jersey accent, he said, so Jimmy, you ever think about going back to college? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, and I said in an equally pleasant way, no, this is it. <laughs> I, nope. He's like, oh, you could teach acting or, you know, but it was like the old idea of, well, you should have something to fall back on and yeah. it'd probably help if you got a degree <laughs> instead of just a high school diploma. <laughs> to think about going on, and I should probably, I guess I should, I mean, I, we could go on for hours. This is so fun. Yes, but. Well. I want a, a couple questions, I guess, to want, wrap it up. But one Please. being the first of, you're always so like, you hold actors in a certain and it's and not just mega movie stars like you mentioned. And maybe some of this. Oh, comes some from, of my favorite performances are by just working people who aren't famous. And when they die, 100%. you're always it's the place to go. If someone, if you see a headline that says so and so who was like blah 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 on whatever show, you know, exactly. like go. Then you'd go to your like Twitter and yes. see a very heartfelt collection of their work, scenes they had done, a little anecdote about or just them. Just some comment about yeah, that's true. Like sometimes when a super, I usually often when an actor dies, I'll say something because I am obsessed with them. Not always. Like sometimes someone super famous, and there's some actors who I respect, but I just don't have a connection to. Yeah. So I don't really have anything to say, and other people are saying plenty of things better mm-hmm. than I would. So yeah. But that is true. I do that. Yeah, there was a, there was an actor named Jack Riley who was just a working character actor. He did a lot of TV. Uh, Mel Brooks used him now and then. And he's most famous for playing a character named Mr. Carlin on the Bob Newhart show. He was the misanthropic man with dark hair who was always like in a bad mood, mm-hmm. always kind of frowning in Bob Newhart's group therapy. And... I he died a couple years ago, and I always uh, enjoyed him. And I realized, thinking about him after he died, that when I was very young, like ten years old, I would watch the Bob Newhart show, and I was really drawn to Mister Carlin, this character. And I, it was only after he died that I realized I was responding to Jack Riley's acting. Before I even understood what acting was or that acting was a thing that I thought about because it certainly wasn't when I was 10 years old. I would enjoy characters on TV. I wouldn't think about the people who were playing them. And Jack Riley's Mr. Carlin had a very internal quality. Actually, the qualities that we're talking about. He was very still. He didn't betray a lot. He didn't do a lot with his face. But he was incredibly funny. But he had he had a wonderful management of energy, mm-hmm. uh, and I think I was actually responding to that technically, in the way that children will be drawn to things that are important to them as adults before they even understand what they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Like my wife is an artist and an animator, and she talks about a tiny moment in like the opening credits of a cartoon that she watched when she was a kid, where like a bird flew or something, and or a, a fairy or something, and she was like, "I'm just drawn to this." She was like drawn to it, and it was just that little moment of movement. Yeah. And then she grew up and became an animator. So the seeds of it were there. So I really feel like, in a funny way, Jack Riley, who's just a working character actor who was never super famous, did TV guest shots. Yeah. Something about his acting spoke to me when I was very young. And I love people like that. I mean, you know, my friend, they're the backbone of this industry, the working <laughs> actors. But I love that you pay homage <laughs> to them and like a tip of the They're cap. important to me. Yeah. And I just get pleasure from them. Yeah. Who was it that, um, oh, her name just flashed through my head. She kind of got some flack because at her Oscar speech, I think she won for Fences. She was like, actors are the only ones who knows what it means who know what it means to celebrate a life. And people are like, well, come on. Like, you know, doctors keep people alive. They appreciate a life. But I think what she was saying oh. is that like, yeah, there are movie stars, but in the same way that you might tell a story about a small town dentist who, you know, helped a bunch of kids uh, have good dental health going on or, you know, maybe volunteered his time or taught, you know, coach Little League, whatever. There are actors that are kind of doing the same thing. They're playing those middle parts that are delivering the the thing we need that we need the Jack Riley to give us the character who's not the main guy but vital to this whole thing going on. And I got to say the other thing that I always appreciate, which I do tend to uh, give special attention to actors like him, sort of the the more unsung actors who aren't talked about when people talk about great acting. Mm -hmm. Even though Jack Riley's Mr. Carlin on the Bob Newhart show was a great performance, one of the all time great sitcom characters, and I hold that in high regard. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about someone like that. I will get many replies from people saying, love that guy. And the fact is, people who are not in show business, uh, who watch TV and movies, love people like that, not just the famous actors, not just the, the movie stars, not just the Brad Pitts and the Cary Grants and mm -hmm. the Joan Crawfords. Yeah. People also genuinely love the Jack Raleigh's and, and you know, the people who are like that guy. They might not even know their name, but they're like, oh, I love when that guy or that woman shows up. She's so funny. And people really respond to those people. So I, I find that very moving. And I, I kind of makes me proud to be one of the working people, you know. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and a link, like a long run at it. It's not just like. Yeah, I've been doing it for a while now. <laughs> it's great. I don't think people realize how hard it is to keep any career, any business afloat. Yeah. But, you know, to be just pursuing an art and keep that it's a dream to keep that sort of dream alive i'm still amazing. inspired by it and and i do think about it differently which is just pleasurable because it hasn't gotten boring yet mm -hmm. you know i'm just trying to find new ways in but i'm i'm continually impressed by actors of every generation young actors as you know i, I love a lot of older actors from the old days but mm -hmm. from movies but I'm I'm constantly inspired and excited by younger actors, you know. Yeah. Florence Pugh, just you know, like people <laughs> who are coming up were really good. Yeah. And really exciting to me, you know. Mm -hmm. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> all right, final question. I haven't. This doesn't tie in that much at all to acting. It's more about just humanity. Is this what, what is my favorite noise? Like with the guy, <laughs> yeah. the actor studio, yeah, yeah. James uh, Lipton used to do. This is, yeah, this is sort of my version of that. <laughs> I don't always ask. The Proust questionnaire. <laughs> He would call it, yeah. This is, there's a button. The answer is always my children laughing. That's supposed, that's your favorite sound. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to say on that show. 
Well, this well maybe it'll tie into this. We'll see. My children like it. <laughs> There's a button. And by pressing it, humans all disappear from planet Earth. Yes. They feel no pain. They just go wherever they go. Yes, they, don't they know evaporate. Yeah, they're gone. <laughs> and But then, you know, planet is left as it is, just zero humans. Would you press the button? Oh, no. Why would I get rid of planet, the, the, planet Earth and our human culture, despite all the uh, unpleasant stuff? All right. I'm just curious. I mean, you've got you know you got elephants out there taking the beating, and you know. Now, I, would I would I disappear as well, or I would be yeah. the last man? Oh, you'd go too. You'd be like, you know what? There's enough. So the theory is, you know what? There's enough suffering. What if we can just vaporize this, and maybe there'll be another big bang, and we can all start over again? Is that the idea? Something like that. I think I I think it's meant to be an exercise in the doomsday that people walk around with constantly with climate change, with yes. the population, with whatever it may be that, oh, geez, we really goofed this up. We're a really terrible species. If we're all gone, that's maybe great news for certain habitats and ecosystems and, and certain animals, yes. but... I don't think it's my place to to make that decision. Mm-hmm. You know? You're, you're quite happily doing your podcast here, getting pleasure from it in your garage, and then... Uh, then I just and then you're just ah, gone. Damn it, James! And, and other people don't get to hear that pleasurable podcast. It's not my. Yeah. Yes, there's war and famine and disease, but you know, that's part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I would not push the button. I like it. I knew you wouldn't. If I had, and I'd want to hear my children laughing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, James Lipton. Uh, what In 1972, a... you astonished us. <laughs> amazed us made us cry that's i that's a good impression i used to love that show oh yeah it was so even though he was quite a character he was a little uh too much but that was yeah. part of the pleasure totally that he was like a kind of pretentious and he, the way he sucked up to everybody too it's yeah. like i mean you're being nice to me but you're not sucking up to me you're like in henry fool you amazed us astonished us with your incredible portrayal of simon grimm the poet garbage man which sounds like i'm making it up but it's true that's what that movie's about it's about a poet garbage man will ferrell really <laughs> softened him up for us because he yeah will him. ferrell did his user-friendly version exactly yeah. and then that somehow welcomed us into like ah this guy's kind of a, a goof and then james lipson would kind of send himself up when he realized he was being sent up which is also the chapter that many famous people get into mm-hmm. like shatner started doing Shatner started doing the Shatner impression. Yeah. Which Kevin Pollack, of course, created. Yeah. Uh, the great stand-up Kevin Pollack created the modern Shatner impression. <laughs> and then Shatner started talking like that because he knew people thought it was funny, even though that was Kevin Pollack's distillation of Shatner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it all came around, full circle. <laughs> you start doing the parody of yourself. Yeah. I don't know that I've quite hit... I'm not famous enough to do the parody of myself, but maybe I will someday. <laughs> I'm James Urbaniak. I don't even know what that would be. Just... I think it said exactly like <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, yeah, I'm James Urbaniak. Oh, Waldo McGillicuddy died. He was in one episode of Rhoda in 1973. <laughs> Rest in peace, Waldo McGillicuddy. <laughs> that, that would be the parody. Yes. Whew, oh, my was... God. One of the... Uh, that uh, we're, I know we need to wrap up, but there's a... My favorite I Think You Should Leave sketch was the one Tim Heidecker was in where he's playing a Gen Xer who's going out with a millennial 
and they're playing celebrity at a party of millennials and Tim is oh, the aging yeah. Gen Xer and Tim's <laughs> references are all like, you don't know who Jack Riley is or, you know, this jazz musician from the 40s. His are all like so specific jazz though it's like even well, yeah, one well, they, notch above they were making up names so yeah. in, for the sake of the sketch they had made up like fake people yeah. but that only this Gen X hipster knew <laughs> and the great joke was that they were also people who were before his generation Yeah. so it's like me at a party going you don't know who Charles Lawton is <laughs> a 23 year old's like no why should I it's like no you shouldn't but I lo- that, that one that one made my skin crawl because I was like that's me I, I've been oh, a lot no. of you're the James, Lips, James Lifton of doing that in that. <laughs> You're so endearing. It's so it's sincere. Well, I don't get angry about it if people don't know. I'm just yeah. like, yeah, well, I'll tell you who this is because it's fun. The first few times we hung out, you would, you would do, not in a skin crawly way, but in a way where I'd be like, I feel bad, man. But no, I don't know who Waldo McGillis is. Oh, yeah, exactly. Is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, at first, I was like, does everyone know this and I'm way out of the loop? Or does James like have a very specific No, I'm database? so in the zone that, yeah. yeah. I love it. I need I my wife fantastic. nearby to kind of shake her head and go, hey, settle down. <laughs> Not everyone knows Waldo McGillicuddy. <laughs> you got to work on that Urbaniac impression. Yeah, it's I like great. it. I, I like the, the well-meaning guy whose references are all at least 40 years old, <laughs> you know. But the guy's only in his 50s, so yeah. he's it's like... It's not like he grew up with these people. He just got into it. Yeah, he just really... No, <laughs> <laughs> James no, Urbaniak. I, I can't. I can't really do it as James Urbaniak. No. Oh yeah, that, I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm kind of hard to do. Yeah, it's a tough one, James Urban. James Ur- Yeah, you're a challenge, James Ur- Yeah, I can't get <laughs> Jackson Public does a, a version of me when we do Venture Brothers. He'll sort of imitate Doctor Venture, mm-hmm. but it, it, I don't think it sounds like me. No, now that I realize it, that's a hard one. If, folks, if you have an impression of James Urbaniak, please send it in. Ping Once somebody on Twitter said, I do an impression of you, but it's just you saying a phrase. And it's it's a phrase this person made up. It's not a phrase that I said like in a movie or that Dr. Venture yeah. says. And they wrote this phrase. It was a tweet. And I saw it and I thought, that is perfect. That <laughs> is me. That is my voice. I could hear. And the phrase was, chewed thoroughly. <laughs> And I thought that was the most brilliant. It was like, uh, it was like a visual. It was like words on paper impression. Yeah. It was like the the right. Isn't that the way I talk? Chewed, chewed, and it thoroughly. goes back to yeah. your mom with the enunciation. The enunciation, and, like, yeah. and it it's it it was just a perfect. The way like when people do Cary Grant, they're like Judy, 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 and that's how he hits his consonants or whatever. Mm-hmm. Even though he never said that. So that's my Judy, Judy, Judy for Chewed the stand-ups thoroughly. out there. And it sounds Chewed like Judy. thoroughly. It sounds like Judy as well. I love that. I, I forget who, who tweeted that, but it was, they got me. Yeah. That was the best impression of me were the words <laughs> Jude thoroughly. I'm like, yep, sounds like me. I get it. I get what you're doing. That's what I should call my production company. Jude thoroughly. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> it's actually a really good idea. No one steal that, please. <laughs> Just come up with that once someone lets we're gonna me produce something. We're going to sit down to watch a movie and there's going to be one of those weird things. You don't know what it is. It's someone fishing and then it's a wormhole and then it's a... And it zooms back and says, chewed thoroughly. Yeah, chewed like, thoroughly. Ah, they beat you to the... No, you, you got, you've got time. <laughs> James Urbaniak of Chewed Productions. Yeah, chewed chew thoroughly, thoroughly Productions is here. Thanks, man. This was so fun. Oh, I, I could... It's always a pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me. <laughs> I, I would have kept going, and I apologize that I didn't. 
Um, next time we have mom, we'll get some some bonus chatting to throw into the Patreon. Uh, where coming up, that was episode 250. So those of you who have supported the Patreon uh, for several years know what that means as far as music goes. So look forward to that coming soon. If you're like, what does that mean? Well, you got to join the Patreon and help uh, support the show. Keep it ad-free. It's made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. Uh, Thanks to Rob Crow for the theme music. Thanks to Dan Pritchard for all his help over the years putting this show together. I've been working behind the scenes, uh, getting a new sketch show together. It's scripted. It's kind of, if you've listened to this show and you've heard some of the little intro sketches, it's um, it's like a little world that includes all of those. It's called Intercepts, and that'll be coming out, I don't know, within the next few months. I'll keep you posted. For now, thanks for listening to The Space Cave. And uh, 250 episodes. Had a little bit of a, a gap because of the pandemic, but allowed us to reset a little bit. I hope you're enjoying new episodes uh, coming out, and I'll try to keep that on track as much as possible. I hope you uh, uh, hope you are well. Okay, let's get out of here. Thanks again to James. If you haven't seen his work, uh, you I mean, there's a lot of it, so dig in anywhere and uh, watch someone who truly loves what they do, is very good at it, that nice uh, combination or intersection when people are skilled and, and gifted at a thing that they pursue and put a lot of work into. I hope you're finding something like that in life that uh, gives you uh, that level of satisfaction, of feeling like you're maximizing whatever it is, your potential, your ambition, your gifts, I don't know. Uh, okay, let's get out of here. This is a song called Underworld. It's by Alice Phoebe Lou. I hope you like it. Thanks I've for got out. so much to say And yet nothing comes close 